Episode four, welcome uh, to the general speech conversation. This time with my friend Matt, I'll tell you about him in just a second. Um, But first, just to say hello. Um, I use a platform called Buzzsprout to host these podcasts. And Buzzsprout very nicely gives me some statistics about how many people are listening and that kind of thing. And it uh, tells me that for the past three episodes uh kind of averages out to being about 30 30 downloads each episode so that suggests that there are about 30 of you listening um to this so to those 30 people uh thanks thanks for being here um i hope you're doing okay i love you i miss you um i don't know who all of you are actually i know who some of you are the people who i know who you are rest assured that i love you and i miss you uh the people who i don't know who you are I am grateful to you anyway. Thank you. Um, And maybe let me know who you are. And then I'll add you to my list of people who I love and miss. Anyway, uh, it's the 28th of September. It's, uh, I don't know when autumn officially starts, but it definitely feels like autumn. It feels like autumn hit us last week, um, that it's getting a little bit cooler, that the sky is gray. um, It's uh, a bit overcast as I look out my window at the moment. And I know that lots of people find autumn as we kind of head into winter and as the days get shorter to be quite a depressing time of year. And that's made even worse, obviously, in 2020 as we're dealing with uh, the deadly pandemic, uh, COVID-19. Um, yeah, and obviously that all sucks, but I, I like autumn. Um, this is actually my favorite time of year. This is the time. This is probably the time of year when my anxiety is lowest and I couldn't I don't really quite know why that is I was talking about it with a friend the other day in the pub and uh, she found it to be quite an alien concept and I think to lots of people it is but there's something about the weather getting cooler the days getting a bit shorter um, which makes me feel a little bit more relaxed and less anxious than I do in the summer and in the in the warmer times of year Um, I think part of it is I like being cozy and autumn and winter have plenty of coziness opportunities uh, in the way that summer doesn't. Summer has very few cozy opportunities. Um, so I am very glad that we're heading into into autumn and I'm looking forward to... I would be looking forward to winter if it wasn't for the pandemic stuff. Uh, I don't quite know how that's going to go. Um, but in normal times, this is my favorite time of year. I read a cool article on Facebook uh, a little while ago, not on Facebook. Somebody had shared it uh, and it linked off a, uh, to a page off Facebook on The Guardian. I think it was a good uh, middle class left wing newspaper. And The Guardian was saying that if you're a little bit nervous about heading into the winter, especially in kind of pandemic times and what it's going to mean about not being able to leave the house as much as you'd like and that kind of stuff, that you think a bit more Scandinavian. Um, and I know that it's it's kind of become fashionable to talk about the concept of, I think it's pronounced Huga, uh, which I can't remember which Scandinavian country it comes from, but it's basically, it's basically slightly posh coziness. So get some blankets, get some, get, get a... A fire if you have a fireplace i don't have a fireplace so i won't be getting a fire but the equivalent of an open roaring fire and make yourself cozy and warm and comfortable and give yourself something to kind of look forward to this winter uh i will put a link to that article in the show notes um because i can't really remember what it said um speaking of social media did any of you guys watch the social uh what was it called the social dilemma on facebook 
uh, not on Facebook, sorry, on Netflix about Facebook. That documentary freaked me out. Um, I really, really recommend you watch it. Um, it's all about how the kind of tech giants, Facebook and Google and Amazon, are engaged in this kind of massive uh, global attempt at changing and controlling human behavior. And that sounds like a crackpot conspiracy theory. That sounds like a kind of whatever flat earth QAnon kind of thing. It really isn't. It's a it's 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 genuinely what they're trying to do. You as the service user of those platforms are the product and what they're trying to do is to change your behavior to send you towards advertising uh, and marketing. And it just feels kind of creepy and shady it gave me the same feeling as i don't know if you ever read uh the book the circle by dave eggers uh you should definitely read it don't watch the movie the movie wasn't good but the book is really really good uh, and again it's just about this thing about how these friendly looking tech giants um are engaged in some really shady stuff so I've kind of come off social media. I haven't really, but I've I've deleted it all from my phone. So I'm not on it all the time. I feel, I feel like I'm maybe trying to combat kind of social uh, media addiction. Um, so I've just got it on my laptop. And it means that when I want to go onto Facebook or Instagram or whatever, there's a kind of conscious act of having to open up my laptop and load it up to do it rather than just kind of a knee jerk thing. I don't know how long it'll last because I am addicted to it, just like most of us are. So at some point I'll probably end up with it back on my phone and go back to the way things were um, a few weeks ago. Uh, But it's not good. I don't think it's good. I'm worried about social media. Um, Are you? What do you think? Anyway, this is not relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm just waffling. Um, let me tell you about this podcast. This is a conversation with uh, my friend Matt, Matt Simkins, um, who is lots of things to lots of people, just like all of us. He is, uh, what is he? He's a father. He's a husband. He's a son. He's a brother. Um, and on a professional level, he is a priest in the Church of England. Um, he is also a really qualified and knowledgeable and skilled musician who's just released an album so uh, i only recorded this episode with matt uh, about a week ago and in fact less than a week ago normally it takes me about a month between recording the episode and uploading it but i wanted to kind of hurry this one through because i wanted to time it so kind of release uh, it, it comes out at the same time of matt's album which has just come out a couple of days ago as i'm recording it so you can if you have apple music or spotify or whatever you can find it on there the album is called Big C, uh, Big S-E-A-C. Um, there's a clever double meaning in there. Um, if you can buy the physical CD, I know who buys physical media anymore, um, but it's it comes with a beautiful sleeve uh, artwork and notes and poetry and it's a it's I mean really it's a it's a book as well as a CD and I would really recommend buying it if you can. But um, if, like me, you don't even have a CD player, um, it's, like I say, it's on Apple Music, Spotify, uh, all good sources. And I really, really, really recommend you listen to it because it's really good. Um, I'll be honest with you, and this comes up in the conversation, I hadn't heard Matt's music before he gave me the album a few weeks ago. Uh, I was at his house and he gave it in my hand as I left. And I left kind of feeling slightly nervous about it, thinking... I, I don't want to listen to a priest uh, <laughs> making making popular Jesus music. And 
what what am I what kind of conversation am I going to have to have with Matt when he asks me what I thought of the album? Um, but here's the good news. It isn't that at all. It's mind-blowing. It's good. Matt's a really, really good musician, and his bands are brilliant, and the the music and the content is thoughtful and moving and um, also really fun. Um, so I, it was such a, a, a like a, a, a treat to be able to text Matt after I'd listened to it to say, I genuinely love this. This is so much fun, and I, I've become a fan um, so I really recommend you do listen to it. And look, I promise you, um, just because Matt is a priest and his stage name is Rev Simpkins, and we talk a bit about that in the podcast, please don't think that this is some slightly lame um, a kind of trendy vicar thing. That's that's not what this is. Um, it's really good. So please, please give it a listen. Um, I hope... That sounded complimentary. I'm, <laughs> I'm suddenly thinking that, that maybe that felt like a backhanded compliment, but I, I mean it very sincerely. It's such a good album. Please, please listen to it. Um, and listen to the podcast, which is just about to start, in which I talk to Matt a bit about it and uh, uh, the, the journey from professional musician and into priesthood and back into music. And, um, and really, I guess what this conversation is about is um not just the music stroke being a priest kind of uh apparent dualism it's the thing about um is there a difference between experiencing god through the construct of organized religion through church through kind of official christian music through hymns um through christian literature and art and experiencing God completely outside of those things, experiencing God by walking through nature or being moved by uh, a piece of completely non-Christian music or art or whatever it is. Is there a, a qualitative difference between religious encounters with God and non-religious encounters with God? And even encounters with God where you might not even have the language of, of God and religion and that kind of thing to go with it. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really, uh, it's a conversation that was obviously really interesting to me um, because I was part of it. And I hope that it'll be really interesting to you as well. Now, in an ideal world, what I would have loved to have done in this episode of the podcast is um, to play you some music from the album Big C. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't do that. And Matt gave me his permission for me to use music from the album. But the trouble is Spotify and presumably other platforms as well use um, kind of machine learning and algorithms and that kind of thing to detect when people are using copyrighted music. And the fact that I have a text here on my phone from Matt saying it's fine to use it wouldn't have helped me because Spotify, uh, Spotify would have just automatically deleted the episode of the podcast. So I figured it was better to not take the risk. Um, but that has led to a cool thing, um, which is that Matt sent me a uh, unreleased demo um, of a song called Jonah, which is from the album Lions. Um, so this isn't music from Big C, but it is music from Rev Simpkins, and it'll give you a, a taste and a feel for the kind of music that Matt creates. Um, and it's kind of cool as well because it's an unreleased demo. So um, even uh, hardcore Rev Simpkins and the Phantom Notes fans won't have heard this version of the track before. Um, and hopefully, hopefully Spotify's algorithms won't pick up on it as a piece of copyrighted music because it's not copyrighted, I don't think. 
we'll see. Um, okay, I've waffled long enough. Um, I'm going to stop talking and hand you over to Matt for, I should say, the first episode of this podcast, which has been recorded not uh, online, but actually face-to-face in my kitchen, a good two meters apart on my extendable kitchen table. Here's Matt. professional musician well um i i think i was a professional musician i don't think i'd be a full-time professional musician and my my profession is as a priest and goes to church there we go so full-time is what i was looking for so you were a full-time professional musician yeah and then you at some point uh transitioned into being a full-time ordained member of the clergy i did um why (laughs) Ah, <laughs> oh, I get asked this. Well, for the money and the respect. <laughs> How's that working out? <laughs> uh, it's working out really badly. Um, well, it's a good question. And uh, I get asked it a lot. And um, uh, I often start off by saying I believe that God was calling me to that ministry. But for most people, that just makes no sense and Mm. just sounds odd let me put it this way I'd reached a point in my life where actually um I'd achieved things that I really wanted to achieve I had a child and a piano and a wife and a home recording studio and a job I enjoyed and everything was going well there was no reason for anything to change and I'd grown up as a vicar's son and grandson and related to many other vicars, and had no romantic view of it whatsoever, and had no intention of ever following them into that ridiculous job, which you know probably cost you your marbles and your energy. And then I just felt completely contrary to all common sense that I was being called to it. And by that, I don't mean I woke up in the morning and, hello, Matthew, this is God speaking. I wish you'd... It wasn't like that for me. I hope God's voice is that camp when I eventually hear it. I think... Listen carefully to my voice. No, (laughs) my voice is not like God's voice, I I imagine. (laughs) Uh, 
to be very serious for a moment, if I may, um, <laughs> the voices um, were really, I had got through people around me who said, uh, yeah, have you thought about this? I think you might be called to it. And I went to see my parish priest and he irritatingly said, oh, I've been waiting for you to come and see me for three years. And I thought, oh no, this might actually be <laughs> a beef for, for real. And all sorts of people that I worked with who weren't Christians um, said things like, yeah, I think it might be something that you should be doing. They wouldn't use the sort of pretentious language that Christians like to yeah, use. Yeah. And the people that knew me best, and I took it really seriously. And of course, my wife, my wife, <laughs> said um, that she thought it might be the case. And so we sold our house and left Colchester at that point, which we really loved, and ended up up training. And I knocked the music on the head, really. I thought, for good. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. Or it not, is a good answer. I, I'm, the, you moved on quite quickly from the kind of language of feeling called. Yeah. And that's something I'm really interested in. Uh, so... It won't surprise you to know that for for a minute, I I wondered whether I was called to be a priest. You know, for when I was working for the cathedral, and you know, once every three years, the cathedral allowed me to preach and do that kind of thing, and I always got very lovely feedback from very lovely people, and um, I kind of began to wonder whether hmm, is this something is this something that I should pursue and. There was never anything in my life to make me either go, yes, definitely, or no, definitely not. Mm. Um, so it's probably still something occasionally I think, should I have done that? Maybe I still can. Um, and I remember once putting something on Facebook about, um, I wonder whether this is where my life is. You know, I've had lots of people tell me that they think I should do this. What do you guys think? And someone commented, not even someone who I know really well, um, but she commented on it and went, look, if you hang out with lots of Christians and they like you, of course they'll tell you you should be a priest. It's just because they like you. It doesn't mean that you're called to be a priest. And she wasn't like she wasn't trying to be a dick. She wasn't saying you're not called to be a priest. But it was a really, actually, I, I really valued it because it's so easy to kind of, I guess, especially in that context where, you know, I was quite visible in that role at the cathedral and, you know, all the, all the kind of shit parts of my personality I kept for, you know, my family and the people who saw me behind closed <laughs> doors. So the cathedral also the best sides of me. So people did say, you know, maybe you should think about priesthood. And where am I going with that? I guess the, yeah, I just, what does it mean to be called? Like, how do you know whether it's really the voice of God saying? Well, I'll I tell you the day I, I die, whether <laughs> I'm certain that I've been called. I know that sounds okay. silly. I mean, I think some really interesting things in there. The most important thing is I completely reject the kind of hierarchy of calling that is still assumed in churches, whether you call the leader the leader mm. or the priest or, or whatever. Uh, and my belief is that God has a call on everybody's uh, life. And it's not um, the case that you know the highest calling is to be a, a priest. The opposite might well, might well be, 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 be true. 
And I um, wanted to resist God at many stages in my life. You know, before before all this happened, I tried to kind of systematically rid myself of faith out of respect for my father, who I love very dearly, because mm-hmm. I had spent years in my 20s just saying, yeah, I'm kind of Christian and being embarrassed about it. Yeah. And I just, I bought into this, if if I actually intellectually consider it, I will see that it's hokum and immediately lose my faith. So, yeah. Yeah. so I did things like I enrolled and I studied theology and I deliberately did systematic theology because I thought it would be the closest bit of theology to BS. <laughs> and, uh, and I found the opposite. Like the more I really intellectually thought about it, um, I just um, could not could not shake it. Mm. I mean, some people are absolutely certain of their calling, okay, um, and and they might describe their faith in the the same way. But but um, you know, I don't think to me Christian faith is about certainty. It's about uh, trust and relationship. And I do believe that I was called to be a priest because I wouldn't have put my family through it (laughs) unless I thought I I was. But um, I can't be absolutely sure until my life comes to an end or the world comes to an end and we discover. I don't know whether I should say that really or not. But I think it's probably quite a reassuring thing. I think... um... I think the idea that there's this category of people who have a direct line to God and who know at all times exactly where God wants them to be and what he wants them to do. Um, it's quite, I find that a kind of horrible thought really. And the, I think the idea that even members of the clergy still kind of have a sense of, well, I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. I think that's quite a reassuring yeah. kind of thing, really. Well, actually, and I had to learn that. It's interesting you say that. For me to actually be able to properly live a Christian life, again, uh, and we could unpack what I might mean, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I needed to hear, I needed to hear the priest at the church I was at, and actually my dad speak in that, in that way, mm. and say, I do have faith. I do. Uh, live this way and I believe this stuff. But I just assumed that these guys, and it was guys at that at that point, and then um, many other women I was influenced by as I got older when, when they were ordained, um, uh, got up every morning with complete certitude and just got on with, you know, there was no need yeah. to question anything. Yeah. And then, I, then when actually I asked them, you know, ask Christians about this stuff, right? And you'll get interesting answers. And then when I really started reading the Psalms properly and the Gospels properly, hmm. I saw that this stuff runs through. People cry out and they question. You know, the Psalmist is not getting up every day and saying, what did you do? Everything's fine. Yeah. So that kind of certitude thing I think comes from the 19th century, actually. It comes from a way of trying to cope with a, a false opposition between as if science and faith are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The only way we could hold on to faith is by having a kind of scientific style certitude, which, by the way, is philosophically questionable anyway. But, yeah. but um, so those, and they're not soft edges to faith. 
It's just about being uh, human. And, and, and uh, that aspect of the Christian faith is what kind of grabbed me by the throat and pulled me back, back in. Yeah. You know, that when we're talking about Jesus, you know, this is the Jesus that was in the garden of Gethsemane. Now, we might want to discuss what he means when he talks about these, these things in the garden. It looks like he's saying, oh, oh dear, I'm not quite sure what's about to happen. Say, say a little bit. So, in fact, I think probably most of the people who have listened to this podcast so far don't have a Christian faith. So t- say a bit more about the Garden of Gethsemane story, what are you alluding to? I will. I want to find the exact words. Are you able to cut this bit out? Or have I just ruined I'll it? Just, I'll just do um, commentary over it. Matt is currently no, no, no. the Garden of Gethsemane story on his iPhone 10 model mobile phone. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, I have looked this up on my iPhone because I want to get it exactly right. Okay, so this is in the the Garden of Gethsemane and things are about to kick off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, the bad stuff that's going to happen to him is about to happen. And uh, he says to the disciples, sit here, I'm going to pray. And uh, then he takes his sort of inner sanctum of, 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 of disciples, that's Peter and and James and John, and it says he began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And then he goes away from them and throws himself on the ground and he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want so this being grieved and agitated Mm. and in the face of uh, something impending and serious is a key part of the story of of Jesus now there's lots of ink being spilt on exactly what is going on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but for me um, you, you take that at face value okay yeah yeah um Jesus did not say, come with me. Uh, guys, uh, I know exactly what's going to happen to me over the next few days. And I'm, I'm totally comfortable uh, with it. You know, I just wanted to give you a heads up, Peter. Yeah. Um, no, the Bible <laughs> describes this being grieved and agitated. And out of Jesus's word, out of his mouth comes the word um, grieved. Mm. Now that that that's different to a kind of public exhibition of absolute unshakable uh, uh, certitude, as if there's no kind of human response, yeah, um, to what's going on, and, and that stuff um, helped. I can have a relationship of trust and love with that Jesus, right? yeah, yeah. The Jesus who quotes the Psalms that mean so much to, to me. Yeah. You know? And then all of a sudden, this kind of thinking that it was all about a kind of maybe like moral perfection or like complete understanding or absolute certitude. That they were shown to be to me the heresies that they, they are. Yeah. Because that doesn't take 
um, Jesus Christ seriously enough. Yeah. And I feel like that, but, and that's unfortunately, I suppose, the image that maybe a minority of very vocal Christians have carved out, which means I think probably that lots of people think that's what Christians are. So Christians are people who have this blind faith in something completely irrational and they're absolutely 100% certain um, to the point of, you know, burning their TV license outside of parliament or, you know, picketing same-sex marriage laws or, you know, whatever it is, because they're so sure that they're right and so judgmental about people who don't agree. And it's, Mm. yeah, I, I mean, I feel like that's certainly not true of most of the Christians who I know, but the, the brand, if you want, of Christianity has that kind of toxic thing weaved into it. That kind of yeah. certainty. Well, in a, in a society that's less literate in what Christians might uh, believe, um, you know, we, we suddenly come to focus on the kind of strains of Christianity that kind of distance themselves. I think, a bit more and and if, you know good journalism it helps if you find people with really strong succinct views that yeah. are controversial yeah and there's always been people like that in christianity that's 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 fine yeah but actually um there are also a lot of really reflective people who won't give you the soundbite answer yeah. Yeah. that the culture wants One of the things about your story, which I think is really interesting, uh, which will lead us, I think, into the dualism conversation, mm. is so you are the lead singer of a band, I think is the right way to put it. Yeah. Called Rev Simpkins and the Phantom Notes. This is correct. Plug. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but what, what I find funny about that. Well, I'm going now. You said <laughs> yeah. Your you yeah. work here is done. Um, you were called Rev Simpkins before you were ordained. Oh, yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the story there? What you were, yeah, your music name was Rev Simpkins and now you actually are a Rev. Yeah. I mean, take that as a sign of how confident I was <laughs> that I would never <laughs> become ordained. And I, I said to dad, is this all right? And dad actually asked his bishop and the bishop said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Look, in the sort of music that I, I love, I love kind of weird pre-war American 
gospel and blues and you know the, um people would often call themselves reverend this that and and the other mm-hmm. even if they hadn't been ordained into the church of england uh, <laughs> and um so um for me that was kind of it it kind of um told people that knew that kind of um bluesy gospely background mm-hmm. and to have um, a bank of the phantom notes with reverend it just sounded um, attractive now yeah. if you were a therapist or an analyst you might say mm, this is interesting self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. <laughs> yeah but i maybe choosing the name was part of trying to ensure that i never became an actual um yeah a reverend but then actually that's kind of was later in my musical um career and the first albums really are full of my kind of turn back to faith in an oblique way, mm. you know. And the band I'd been in before, I wasn't known as the Reverend or anything. Okay. It's just Matt and playing in this band. And then the Rev Simpkins stuff started really, well, after my daughter was born and was very ill at the beginning. And that was the point where... I reassessed everything and I wanted to try and rid myself of faith or embrace it. That was the point when it was like, I can't mm. kick the can down the road. How do I kind of explain this to my children? And also the kind of, you know, she wasn't very ill for very long, but, you know, when she was ill right at the beginning, I've never felt like that. Mm. Like, it just, I walked home from the hospital having been booted out. Um, because I couldn't stay, I hadn't done anything wrong, but it was, like, <laughs> it was like all meaning and purpose had like leached out from the world around me. Sorry to be depressed, but it was no, just no, like interesting. because we'd gone from this child arriving and been overjoyed to the end of the day, it's like that we were just told there's something wrong, <laughs> she was taken to special care, things have changed now. No one explained what was wrong, wow. and we were like, oh. And then I was booted out. So, uh, um, and I got home and my parents were there and they, they said, well, shall we pray with you? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> in a slightly embarrassed way. And, uh, and that was incredible. It was incredible. Um, so it was just a moment where I kind of reass- reassessed things. So mm-hmm. who knows why I was called the, the Rev. I think fundamentally it's trying to avoid actually becoming... Yeah, a reverend. Well, because that's a. I mean, uh, you um, very kindly, I guess, about a month ago, gave me the most recent Rev Simpkins album, um, which is called Big C. Big C. That's S E A, not the letter C. That's right. Um, and yeah, you gave it to me, and I, at that, I think that was the first that I'd heard of Rev Simpkins as a band. What? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm not from Colchester. Um, <laughs> um, there is one fan outside Colchester, I'm told. <laughs> well, if I move, then there'll be two. Exactly. Um, where was I going? Yeah, so I guess when you say it was a way of safeguarding yourself against potentially ever becoming a priest, the, the anxiety there is that being a priest and being in a band called Rev Simpkins means that people potentially assume, oh, this is going to be Christian music. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a miss. Um, and 
I mean, I had never heard it, so I didn't know what to assume. But when I first listened to it, I was blown away. I thought, this is actually brilliant. This is really cool. And it's not, well, is it, it's not Christian music with a capital C and a capital M. It's not, it doesn't feel like it's setting out with an agenda of proselytizing, I guess, of evangelizing. Um, And that was such a relief to me because I thought, that's brilliant. I can really enjoy it. And I just, I mean, yeah, again, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on, Mm. did you ever think about making, you know, official overt Christian music with that kind of remit to share the message or was that never on the cards and why or why not? Well, I'm just confused by the terminology of Christian music. Yeah. So, so I'm writing music. I mean, I happen to be Christian, mm-hmm. and and if you know me and know my experiences, you know the worldview in the in these songs is is a Christian uh, worldview. Yeah. But but it's not music that is some sort of um, tool or or instrument. You know, I want to write music that connects with people and is creative and moving, actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this tells the story of a particular, you know, period in my my life that was difficult but ended well. And there's a kind of human story there. Um, and so I write music as a as who I am. And I, as, I, as I've said to you before, I don't really feel any different to when I was 17. Mm-hmm. I know that I've matured, perhaps, and changed, but... Um, yeah, I mean, in Christian music, capital C, cap, capital M, is is really big business, especially in the states. Yeah, over here, it's kind of artistic death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it just is. And what I mean, what's interesting is that um, people take it seriously as, as music. And actually, you know, they'll say, "Well, he is actually ordained." Yeah. Um, and I was, I thought that once I was ordained, that would just close the doors, but it doesn't because I think people are interested by its, um, its, its content. And I was talking earlier about these great blues musicians that I, I love, you know, um, I mean, I, I am worshipping God, I hope by trying to be creative and, you know, um, but, uh, I, this kind of saying, well, here's the righteous music and here's the devil's music. I don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we get, some people get very squeamish about these things, but this pre-war gospel, blues, country, folks, weird stuff that I love, you know, it all gets mixed up and it comes out after the war as um, soul and gospel and, and rock and blues uh, music you know it's all come to, together but there's the, the, I don't see that there's a genre called um, Christian yeah. mu- music um, to me yeah it's, you just reminded me of uh, you found a South Park to your show I can't possibly um, <laughs> admit that in a, in a okay. podcast well, let, let me tell you, there's a show. An I know some show. of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a brilliant episode of South Park where I can't remember what triggers it, but the boys decide to um, 
get a platinum record to make it their goal to get a platinum record. And Cartman splits himself off from the rest of the group because he thinks he can get there quicker. So they have a competition who can get to the platinum <laughs> record quicker. And Cartman quickly realizes that if he markets himself as a Christian band, he'll get there in half the time because all you need to do is replace the word baby with the word Jesus. And just the, the, the what you were just saying about like it's big business in America, the, the Christian market will just buy whatever drivel <laughs> you put out because it's branded as Christian. Um, yeah, that made me laugh. I'm familiar with that episode. I mean, the, what yeah. always made me chuck about that episode is that actually it's kind of the opposite of what what happened famously in the history of song. You know, Ray Charles and Sam Cooke uh, would put the word baby in where, where Lord had, had been. Is that right, really? I mean, yeah, literally. I mean, you can find That's sort amazing. of gospel tunes. Wow. So, um, you know, there's some depth to that television programme. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really... I don't want to be too cynical about it. Because I just have to admit, it's, it's music that doesn't um, move me. Mm. And, and, you know, at what I would call actual gospel music really moves me and really connects with me. Yeah. But as a Christian, I have been fed, spiritually and otherwise, by all sorts of music from all sorts of places, all sorts of mm. people. Mm. And again, in the period when I, I would have said, well, I'm not very interested in faith, you know, especially in difficult times, it was like, it was almost as if I had a kind of faith in music and it was mm. um, bits of John Coltrane, like Love Supreme, that now it seems every Anglican priest is an expert in, in John <laughs> Coltrane. It really makes me chuckle. Um, but or, you were there first. I was there first because I'm cooler. Yeah. I, I, and um, and um, uh, some Bob Dylan songs and records, not the Christian ones. Mm-hmm. The ones where he's kind of skirting around at things like John Wesley Harding, and you know, there's uh, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine and um, some uh, bootlegs, sign, of, sign on the crosses. Or it's these sort of skirting around the sidelines that were really interesting to me and moving to me, yeah, and and connected with me, yeah. But when Dylan gets into straight down the line, this music is going to be an instrument of your conversion. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do it for me. <laughs> and it never did. Spat up coal on a lonely shore. I dug my fingers into wet sand. I drew the grains. To my mouth to taste and to feel to be assured what's real, yeah, and life was real, and just like Jonah, like me swallow me, just like Jonah, I'll be spat out again, yeah, just like Jonah, I guess that was me. I think that's the. Uh, I, I mean, I will allow myself to be cynical because um, 
I don't have to not be cynical. <laughs> um, I, I think the what I am cynical about is it feels like there's a market within not just Christian music, but kind of Christian art more broadly, which isn't so much about a genuine mm. bubbling up of what is experienced and, you know, a sense of reality and passion and yearning, you know, whatever. Um it's more, it feels like a kind of almost like a marketing exercise. So it feels like almost like there's a boardroom somewhere saying, well, young people are into drill music at the moment. So we need to make some Christian drill music. Um, and there are, I won't be so much of a dick as to name people, <laughs> but there are Christian artists who, if you look back over the past 20 years, have changed their genre yeah. according to what's fashionable. Um and that to me feels quite cynical. That to me feels quite inauthentic. And what you were just saying, you know, I think the certainly there are hymns which I have found move me and draw me closer to God. Um, but outside of that, I think Johnny Cash's American Recordings 4. Yeah. Um, and... More uh, actually, is it more recent? Maybe it's not. Damien Rice's O yeah. are two albums that f- make me feel like I'm connecting with God. Feel like because because they both feel like such a, and again they both have that slightly Christian. There's a there's a language which both of those guys can use, and maybe that's why those things appeal to me because I speak that language. But both of those feel like a genuine crying out for something a yearning for something a passion for something i mean you know the psalms sit at the center of the the bible right yeah and for listeners that don't know the the psalms you know it's just chock full of emotion like negative emotion like there's some really violent imagery and um you know in some of the songs on this in fact a lot of the songs on the album just there's lots of stuff straight out of the psalms that you might recognize but they're not so um, that crying out, that yearning, that restlessness of heart is part of the human uh, condition. And Christians, uh, you know, from Augustine, St. Augustine onwards, mm. have said that, that, that searching, you know, we find our final rest in, um, in God. So that, that power of music to take you along with that, um, I think is really, really incredible. But but the different musics are used in different places for different things. I think that's important to remember, mm-hmm. you know. And actually, although I think all forms of like worship and, and liturgy, which is the word we use for the kind of structure and the words that are used in worship, that you know, that it it does gather you up. Like it is liturgy and worship is coercive in the sense that it tries to gather you together in yeah. in worship. But some music in that context i personally find much more coercive in a way that just doesn't um help so i've been to services where clearly someone's trying to get you to emote to respond with emotion by just you know bringing in the changes that are like bad versions of u2 and coldplay (laughs) and you've got the keyboard with the the string doubling the piano part and yeah you know um, the drums are gradually building, and there's a, yeah, you know, yeah. an easy pentatonic melody that's repeated, right? A lot of people are moved by that, and actually, I don't think I should dismiss it, right? Mm. But for me, it's like, oh, you've just listened to 
some naff music and yeah. thought, oh, that gets a good response. And I'm just going to ply you with that. Yeah. Now, because I'm musically sensitive, it just doesn't work. And because in my younger days, I was really nervous about being coerced or, or guilt being used to drag me into faith. I was like, I'm out of here. I, I, yeah, yeah. I can't, um, I can't cope with it. That, that's music in worship and music elsewhere. Um, that restlessness, that connection to the pit of your stomach and your brain often at the same time, you know, it takes up all of who we are. And that's exactly what I get um, in the Psalms. You know, I've done some lecturing in music as well. And I loved lecturing in music because it's one subject where it was very rare to find people who were like, oh, well, you know, I'm just doing it. <laughs> you know, people there because they, pa- they have a real passion for it because yeah. it's kind of shaped their identity and their outlook and they might use it as escapism or a way of inspiring them. But people have very kind of religious relationship with their favourite CD. You know, they mm. venerate this stuff. They have, you know. And we could say, oh, well, this is thoroughly unhealthy. I love it. Or you could say, um, something really interesting and wonderful is going on there. And, you know, there's yeah. a, a theologian called Karl Barth, a reformed theologian in the 20th century, and to slightly misquote him, you know, he said, God can speak through anything. Uh, I can't remember what the three things are, but two of them were, you know, God can speak to you through a dead dog or a bassoon <laughs> concerto, right? <laughs> I like that. Um, so who are we to say, this is the boundary, right? This mm-hmm. is the boundary of worthy uh, music. Yeah. And, and the Psalms are not avoiding um, the full reality of human life. Song of Songs, which is basically in the Old Testament, folks, if you don't know, it's just an amazing erotic poem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which has spiritual meaning as well. But they didn't say, well, we better take the, um, the, the rude bits out. Yeah. It's there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's there. And um, other bits of the Bible, like Job, which deal with sort of despair and anger and depression and people giving you really bad advice when you're in trouble. Yeah. Now, it's it's all there. <clears throat> Where in there is this boundary that says, you know, that, that you, if you're going to go shopping and you're a Christian, folks, can you go to the Christian music aisle? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and, of course, I know this is a cliche, but, um, you know, if Jesus was walking <laughs> to Culture <laughs> HMV... Um, <laughs> he wouldn't just be interested in people that it'd be interested in everybody of course but, you yeah. know it's just this kind of um, this temptation to try and separate yourself out now I'm not denying that there's all sorts of things in the world that can do us damage yeah. and can cause difficult and dangerous obsessions mm-hmm. that can actually happen in, in in the church and in Christian contexts as well right mm. um but I, it's a bit like when I tell me if I'm talking too much. I'm no, 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 this no, is no, no, it's good. It's good. So I studied um, classical music, and I was a, a choral scholar. But I loved, I always loved jazz and rock and roll and just weird music like Captain Big. I just always loved mm-hmm. weird stuff. And I remember talking to someone who used to teach me um, the piano, and I got into my head that because I was going to study classical music that I should like give up listening to the kinks and blur and radiohead because mm. that was bad 
Yeah. And he just sort of laughed and said, well, just listen to what moves you and what you're interested in. And um, I'm so glad he, he said that. Right, and that, that was a bit like what we're discussing here in terms of how Christians engage with Christian music or other music. I thought that, you know, the righteous way was just listening to classical music. But it turns out that you can enjoy Mahler, right, and Palestrina and also love the Stooges and, and Miles Davis. Mm. Um, I don't know what it is about, maybe it's just to do with identity and wanting to feel part of a particular group. But the discomfort of being open to God in different yeah. contexts is really important. And if I hadn't learned that, um, I certainly wouldn't be a priest mm. now and probably wouldn't have discovered what faith is. Well, and that I think that comes to the dualism stuff that I wanted to talk to you about, really. Um, so I, I grew up in a scene which in which my kind of Christian identity was very much defined as in opposition to everything else. So um, we were the chosen ones. We were the saved ones. We were, you know, God's, God's people and everybody else was fucked basically going to hell or, you know, lost or or whatever. And that manifested itself in all sorts of weird ways. So like, I remember it was, it was a, a narrative which I don't think I ever quite got the balls to do I'm glad but I heard a lot of people who were like I'm going to get rid of all of my music collection apart from my Christian CDs because everything else is leading me astray basically so I'll just have Christian CDs um, or I'll get rid of all of my DVDs apart from the passion of the Christ or whatever um, and our our identity was really kind of it was it's interesting because that being part of that Christian youth group was so good for me in lots of ways because I struggled, you know, mm. I didn't, school was kind of tricky for me. I wasn't one of the popular kids. Um, I, you know, I had some anxiety, not the best self-esteem in the world, that kind of stuff. And then I went to this Christian youth group, had a group of young people who, who liked me and who looked, you know, genuinely seemed to look forward to spending time with me. And so it was really good for me in that sense, but it was really bad for me in the sense that it told me that the world outside is scary and wrong. Mm. And that we're we're the chosen ones. That you you better stay here safe with us, um, where where things are okay. Um, and I just where am I going with that? I guess my question is, like, so I've got a friend, for example, who wouldn't call herself a Christian by any means, um, although she has got a Christian kind of background. Um, her parents are Christians, and she talks about um, how she finds going to church a completely alienating experience mm. and one that makes no sense to her or she doesn't feel that she fits in and one where she feels like she's being judged. Whether or not she actually is, I don't know, but she feels that way. Um, but she talks about that sense of awe, that sense of wonder that people get from church. She gets that when she goes for a walk and sees nature connects with the outdoors and that type of thing she gets it from spending time with animals you you know that that. and the the culture that i grew up in that christian youth group would have said well that's all very nice that she likes sunsets but it's not enough really she needs to get to a place of becoming a christian otherwise she's messed up and 
rightly or wrongly, I'm not making a theological point here, but just saying where I am, yeah, I just can't get my head around that anymore. Like, I feel like I really don't think Christianity has the monopoly on God. Um, and I think that God exists outside of Christianity as much as he is within it. Um, anyway, I'm kind of waffling, but no, you're not. Just, just react. <laughs> okay. So I want to react in two, in two ways, right? Yeah. The first thing you were talking about, this kind of keeping yourself pure and away from, from other things. The lie, the lie that is often told by Christians and others, right, is that there's a choice between um, it's either just a purely righteous thing, right, or, or you're saying anything goes. This mm-hmm. goes a lot of moral discussions. It's like as if it's either you either do it right or something. But actually, it's not. It's not that um, that simple. And um, there are heresies and i'm sorry to use that word again but it's important there are heresies that yeah. run through christianity the themes come back and again if i talk about manichaeism there's not many people that would use that word to describe themselves now right but the the, the, the you know sometimes it, we talk about the universe as if there's kind of good god and then this other sort of bad force bad god over here now mm-hmm. one of the things that saint augustine who wrote about this sort of restless heart you know um, he said we have to take um, the Creator God um, seriously, okay? Which therefore means that that sunset, by the way, has got something to do with God, mm-hmm. right? Now, um, I would say that as a, a Christian, um, one of the things I've been given, one of the things I've received, is this kind of story of. God's relationship with the universe and with humanity and of Jesus's role in that. And for me, that amplifies that stuff. It's not in opposition, right? It puts it in perspective. Yeah. Right. So I look at um, the beautiful sunrise and I'm always confused by why this has to be like, it has to be something beautiful in nature. You know, I could look at an urban bus that is beautiful, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that, sto- and that story amplifies it because it tells me this stuff is intended for good. No, mm-hmm. I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect. Actually, the sunset isn't perfect, yeah. but its goodness points towards, um, uh, you know, the goodness of, of, of God. And, um, you know, I am, I am a... A Christian, as you'd expect, so you'd expect me to say something like that. But but um, so um, today on social media, my friend, who's also a priest, posted something about um, the second Black Sabbath album, Paranoid. Okay. About um, what a great album it is, and most people who don't know Black Sabbath would think this is dodgy territory. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is an album that's got like songs on it. There's a song called War Pigs. It's just about um, the horror of, of war mm-hmm. and another song about the horror of um, heroin abuse. Like there's more kind of moral, like later metal loses all that stuff. And a lot of music that troubles me is just about kind of pure consumption yeah. or indulgence, whether that's sexual or otherwise. But this is like Black Sabbath. It's like 
there's sort of a moral thing like this yeah. and and so i mean not all the songs but some of it is as heavy as the riffs are right so is there anything good in those songs well there is something good in those mm. uh songs and and i think that my faith faith helps me amplify that now i could then put on another of their record and you know listen to snowblind which is about what fun it is to take cocaine. Now, okay. that's not a good thing to do and not something that I would uh, endorse and yeah. is potentially damaging, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not this... Okay, but if we have this perspective, right, and this this sort of... Li- this faith as a living relationship trust, you know, where you um, are connected to other Christians and imperfectly and, and trying to figure things out for your... Your life, you know, we're able, I think, to approach these things and kind of try and discern, you know, what's good for us and what's not good for us. Now, maybe I should just say to my kids, you're not listening to Black Sabbath until I'm satisfied that you have a fully formed, mature Christian faith. Yeah. I'm not sure I've got a fully formed, mature Christian faith. But that's, that's, again, there's a, there's a dangerous game there especially with people that are inquisitive, you know, and in this era of social media where you can get access to this stuff, you know, people will seek that, people will seek the kind of illicit stuff out and it will have a greater weight with with them. You know, why not um, allow yourself to be, have your eyes open to what's going on in God's creation Mm -hmm. and when something is unjust or wrong, uh, naming it, and when something is beautiful, just have another reason to rejoice in its in its beauty. Yeah. And I think when I was talking earlier about this in that slightly pretentious way about, you know, when I struggled with my faith, the music kept me going. <laughs> but it did. Yeah. It did because it gave, yeah. it was, that music for, in my life was about purpose, right? And, and meaning mm-hmm. and stuff that, that words can't entirely adequately um, capture, and so maybe maybe God was using that yeah. to keep me on the back burner for for later things. It's just too simplistic to chop the world down the 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 middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, if you read old theologians like. Augustine, they've got really interesting things to say when we're going back to the discussion about who is in and who's out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's they're not simplistic things, yeah, and they're things that lead you to live a life of humility and openness to um, other people, yeah, and I think that's the. Um... Yeah, the life of humility and openness to other people is so. So I, I, so the sixteen-year-old. If you're having this conversation with the sixteen-year-old version of me, yeah. you'd be talking to somebody who believes that you you must be a Christian, you must join the religion, otherwise you're going to hell when you die. That was that was really the motivation for joining. You know, it's it's you join so that you go to the good place when you die, rather than the bad place. Mm. And I I don't believe that anymore not 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 at all i i 
again, not necessarily making a profound theological point, but just in terms of what I believe, I can't really get my head around the place of eternal torture and suffering at all. I think I, I probably just let go of that idea um, in, in my own faith. Um, so that being the case, if you don't need to be a Christian to enjoy the fruits of the afterlife, um, why, why should my friend come to church on a Sunday morning to be bored? Do you know what I mean? Like what I think, yeah, fair enough. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe, maybe you don't have to be a Christian. Um, and I'm kind of pretty happy with that really. And I, I do go to church because it means something to me and it reveals something important to me in a language that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. But actually if you're, I can't remember the words that you use now, but essentially a, a compassionate person, a humble person, somebody who serves others. And I guess somebody who has a degree of peace and, and fulfillment in life without going to church, I'm, I'm not going to try to push you to go. Um, you probably got stuff to teach me, if anything. <laughs> um, yeah, but what if I said to you, because I'm getting to, to, to know you, Tim, mm. if just the person who you are, just who you are, is actually telling people about God, and I, I think the Christian uh, God, although it's not. I'd want to unpack that for about half an hour. <laughs> yeah, but, another time. Okay. So, you know, how I relate to people, who I am as a, as a disciple is really um, in, in, important. And so um, it seems to me like we've got, you know, again, it's not a choice between I am coercing you to become a Christian and, oh, I don't want to. Um, oh, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, Dad and the Sons of Joy, one of my musical collaborators, he's on this album, um, is a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And he's a brilliant friend of mine. And um, we don't get in a room and say, I'm going to convert you. And uh, we talk about the Trinity and all sorts of interesting yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. But we respect each other, right, from our faith. Yeah. And we're interested in each other as human beings and interested in what we believe and and respectful we all have you know the relationship between church and christianity i know is um difficult for a lot of people and we've all had different mm -hmm. um experiences and a lot of people say to me if i walk through the door i would be struck by lightning to which i can say did you know that my predecessor in 1958 was struck by lightning while playing. <laughs> um, to which, well, I'm being serious about it, I say, look, do you think that I walk through that door because I think I'm perfect or even worthy of it? Mm. The only reason I walk through that door is because I know I cannot do anything in my own power, really. Mm. And that I believe uh, that just... Acknowledging my vulnerability collectively um, is really powerful, and then of course, of course, I believe in grace and goodness and things yeah. coming from 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 God. But it's really difficult, and in the kind of Christian circles that I then moved in, which is sort of liberal 
circles. You know, sometimes in some contexts, there did appear to be a kind of squeamishness about acknowledging like, what you might believe or who you are. I just think we need to have integrity, right? Yeah. I, I think that's a word that doesn't get used because it's not shown in many public figures anymore. So mm. um, that that the who you are and the way you behave needs ideally to relate to kind of your the values that you might um, hold on to. And I do hold on to values. And those values, I think, have been shaped by, I believe, to be the truth about um, God and and, and Jesus, mm-hmm. but but that doesn't lead me to want to immediately pile on and coerce or judge other people. Yeah. I would love people to um, experience the love of God. Yeah, yeah. but um, me trying to intellectually browbeat you doesn't really manifest that mm-hmm. to you. And me making a NAF album of really cheesy, like, praise songs yeah. does nothing. Yeah. But, but when I started feeling call, called, I did seriously consider that actually I was just called to carry on doing what I was doing. Because what actually would happen is people would ask me about some of the things in the songs. There was a song called Daniel and, and the Lion, which was a as much about Richard Dawkins as it was about anybody else. Okay. Anyway, it's just okay. soft. It's, Is he um, the liar? Uh, uh, no, he has um, yeah, no, he, he has a discussion with the lion. Anyway, <laughs> uh, um, uh, it's a respectful discussion. Uh, but then people would ask me at the end, you know, part of this song was about, um, you know, the story from the Bible, whether you think it's true or not, mm-hmm. about somebody being confronted with a completely hopeless situation. And this guy just started talking to me and was facing the most extraordinary situation. And then I could say, look, all I can tell you is what I believe. And and that, I think, is much more powerful than me saying, um, you know, unless you sign up to this, um, you're going to... Hell, I mean, that's not how I think it yeah. works, but yeah. Um, and I think what what you said about I'd like for people to experience the love of God, I completely, absolutely sign up to that. I think the idea of knowing yourself to be loved and lovable by something infinitely bigger than yourself, yeah, lovable. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, that, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it, yeah is, is, a, is a really transformative thing. And uh, I guess where I've got to, which is different from where I was mm. 20 years ago, is, again, this thing about I don't think Christianity holds the monopoly on the love of God. Um, so I, I mean, if nothing else, I think if, if the whole world was Christian in the way in which I am a Christian, we'd really lose something. Like we'd lose a lot of the color of, of the world, you know, a lot of the vibrancy. And I, I, for what, I don't know why this is, but there's something in my personality that when I meet somebody who comes from a different religion to me, or not even necessarily a different religion, but a different background, you know, grew up in a culture very different to mine or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
I gravitate towards them because I'll be like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And I do this slightly kind of nerdy thing of like, oh, yeah, I know how to say hello in that language. Is this right? You know, and I like I I just think there's something really cool about, you know, if God is infinite, but then, yeah, go on, go no, on, just, you jump in. I, but that, that, that you're just pointing out, I think, another problem that I might have had with some of the things that might have been said to you as a teenager, although I wasn't mm-hmm. then, I wasn't into jump to assumptions, which is that somehow that Christianity is a kind of uniform um, identity. Yeah. And actually, um, in the New Testament, um, some of the, the, the New Testament's got some letters in there written by early Christians trying to kind of help grow the, the church. And in some of these letters, there's some amazing descriptions of what they think God's world should look like. And it is not of difference being eradicated. Yeah. It is of yeah. difference being honoured and taken up. And Christians are rubbish at that. And we still do it on the liberal side and the conservative side. Yeah. Yeah. We can only see it as this sort of monochrome, flattened, um, not properly diverse thing. Now, I know it's different when we're then talking about different belief systems or, or, or faith. But m- m- my understanding, or my vision of what might what the kingdom of god might mean so that a christian might talk about the kingdom of god in terms of saying um, what does god intend for things in the end it's full of of color and um diversity and and lovable chaos and you know mm. this kind of it, it, it's just a real it's like a basic human um failure to kind of fall into perfectionism i think yeah in any in any um and so that it's no surprise that religion and atheism often fall into those yeah to those things yeah well you um, said that i think at one point christians are bad at this and i, I nearly jumped in to say i think just people are bad at it because yeah but well, that's the point though christians are bad at it because they're uh people yeah, uh, and sometimes they can be really bad at it because they've maybe contorted an aspect of the. But you know, the history of uh, Christian engagement in different cultures is uh, really troubling at times and really interesting at other mm. times. And again, this kind of distinction. You know, one of my great heroes is a guy called Conrad Noll. Right, he was the vicar of Thaxted in in Essex. He was a very colourful bloke. And um, in those days, it was a really rural place. And he, so he got the Morris dancers like in church for the harvest procession. He brought life into the church, took the church out into life, not to judge, but to say, what if your enjoyment of that real ale and that weird yeah. dance like, <laughs> might have something to do with a God who actually would like you to have enjoyment? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I just think that's so powerful. Yeah, and easy to dismiss as somehow not being proper. But actually, it's harder. Mm-hmm. It's easier just to say, "Look, I'm cutting myself off over here." Here's the you yeah. Know. Um, and I guess the risk with that is that you end up. Or like we were saying earlier on about kind of Christian music, you end up learning to speak a language that's not your language 
so as to co-opt people into your culture you know so okay we'll make music that young people like so that we can make them more like us ultimately yeah um but actually the idea that the language that young people speak or the the morris dancers dance and love of real ale or whatever it is has value in itself not just as a tool to kind of bring people into the fold but actually that there's something beautiful in this in its own right i mean it's really exciting. So, um, not so much about Morris dancing. I can't be excited about Morris dancing, but the other stuff's all good. You've got so much to learn. No, <laughs> you might be right. No, you're wrong. Uh, if you go to Sutton Hoo, you know, we see this of where the Anglo Saxon king are buried with um, Christian and pagan artifacts. And it's so funny to hear, you know, archaeologists and historians sort of, sort of fall over themselves for some sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, then if you go to, I went to Cumbria, I've forgotten where, what the name of the place is, but there they've got these amazing stone crosses. And the stone cross that appears to have um, a little image of Thor, a story to do with Thor on it as, oh. as well, right? So um, I don't think what's going on there is the kind of marketing approach to Christianity. Yeah. I do think there is going with the grain of people's experience. And the reason I am a Christian is that uh, uh, to believe that, that somehow Jesus is son of God and son of man, that he was a real person and lived in a real time, in a real culture, and heard good and bad music, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and touched all those aspects of humanity that we experienced, that, that God would like live that stuff and die that stuff. That 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 tells us something about how interested God might be in in our humanity, and then all of a sudden, all of that stuff where we try to keep huge swathes of us out of the room is revealed for the really dangerous, borderline psychotic behaviour. Yeah. Sorry that it that it that it that it is, mm-hmm. but Christianity doesn't help itself because we have texts. That, that um, you know, I think our living uh, text, so you'll get things that say things like the age of flesh or, or, or flesh being used in a negative mm. sense. And we read that these days, as we would use the word flesh, to think it just means anything to, the, to do with the body is bad. Yeah. And that's a classic cliche about Christianity. Anything bodily, ooh. Yeah, yeah. Except we believe that Jesus like was bodily resurrected yeah. and his resurrection body had the wounds on, right? They weren't erased mm-hmm. into this sort of superhumanity, you know. It was ta- yeah. take, taken up. Whereas actually when we're talking about the age of the flesh or this language of flesh, it's about um, um, the darker sides of maybe our obsessions, mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. things that are, are that don't lead us towards love and and goodness yeah but it's very easy to then turn that into something that you dismiss or even more troubling to me to give it like a power as if it's like a second evil god yeah yeah you know and i think that's again i know that this podcast will look at kind of issues of sex and sexuality a lot of our a lot of the problems christianity has got itself into is but not by not taking the body, material things, yeah. seriously enough. Yeah. And interestingly, I think society is following that in, in, in all sorts of 
mm-hmm. of ways. Um, yeah, you know, that's a different is. sort of dualism, as if yeah. you know our minds can exist apart from our our bodies. Well, um, you know, if you kill my body, this conversation is is well, it might improve from your yeah. point of view, but for mine, it would be worse. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's definitely a, yeah. That you just reminded made me think. I feel like there's a new Puritanism which is emerging, um, and it's interesting. I think that when it comes to conversations, for example, about sex, that um, some of the things which are beginning to emerge from the liberal secular West look a lot like really old school Christian Puritanism. Um, so the the Me Too movement, which I think was really important and glad that it happened and glad that it continues to happen. And, you know, it's it's absolutely not right that any woman should be made to feel unsafe or or anything like that around a man. But some of the outworking of that is a sense of, well, feeling sexual desire is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So just keep a lid on it. Um, Which looks a lot like kind of old school Christian Puritanism. Um, So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something in completely, you know, secular culture. But again, doesn't this just come back again to purpose and respect mm. for other human beings yeah again those debates to me i'm not trying to overly simplify okay but there's something about actually respecting people that you're attracted to or people of the opposite sex and there's something about you know what is actually the purpose of this desire now if we're going to say it's just so that my genes reproduce and I have a little bit of fun, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, as Christian, again, I think like my enjoyment of, of sex is am- amplified right, by this understanding of some kind of beauty and purpose be- behind it. Yeah. Um, that's going to sound really weird. <laughs> but I mean it you know and, and that again you know, music is so important to me you know and oh. I love playing loud music you know I want to feel it yeah, in my yeah. guts yeah and I love singing and having my ears ringing sorry folks mm-hmm. because I feel most alive when I'm aware of what my body can yeah. do and how it can interact with God's creation and connect with people so, you know, if there's a beautiful piece of music where the words are ooga blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. If it connects with someone as a musician, um, there's something beautifully godly there. Yeah. Now, I think very few people that listen to my music are Christian, probably. And it's not a Christian record label. Mm-hmm. Most of my musical mates are not um, Christian. And... Um, it's never, well, as far as I can perceive it, it's never been an issue for for them. Listeners, you can hear a, a cat in the background. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> I like that. Sorry. <laughs> they're, they're, Who, um, who's, who's this cat? Uh, I can't see the cat. There are two. There's Apache and there's Magnificat. Um, what what music do you like, Magnificat? She likes oh, it. They're the kippers on this way. She's always always going on about Rev Simpkins and the Phantom Notes. I like production. That's because I actually produced it as well. 
<laughs> Bye. Bye. She's got excellent taste. Excellent taste. How did you teach her to, to talk? That's incredible. She was already talking when I got her. That's yeah. why I bought her. Yeah. And I like cats. I just wanted to have you, someone to have a conversation. You should with. do a podcast with your cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The trouble is she's not, even though she can technically talk, mm. a lot of her opinions are awful. She's mm. quite racist, misogynistic, homophobic. Well, you can expose those problematic yeah. things for what they are. Yeah, in a gentle way. But music, <laughs> uh, you know, it is a bodily thing. And, and I love the way, like, I'm really fascinated by the way poets like to, when they're talking about something that they think is transcendent, they always appeal to musical things. Yeah. You know, I study composition. I taught composition. Uh, and harmony, and I'm fascinated by how music works. It kind of works like mm-hmm. architecture does, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and um, a lot of people think that might ruin music for you if you kind of understand what's going on. It doesn't tell me why a piece of music is necessarily good. It might tell me something's interesting structurally. Mm. But um, it's fascinating how, in a secular world, uh, well, I'm misusing that word to mean non-religious yeah, thing yeah. isn't how I would actually use it but in a second world people will still talk about the spirituality of yeah thing. in fact I saw an interview with um, Richard Dawkins was he talking about Schumann or Schubert I'm sure he's talking about a piano quintet and he just spoke so beautifully and used spiritual language about the power of this mm, mm. this music um, and it just fascinates me that it's an area where people are drawn to that kind of language and that yeah kind of yeah. Um, openness because you know music it doesn't just come from nowhere you know you learn about different styles of music as you go up we absorb yeah. stuff yeah. we associate it with different experiences don't we yeah I think, that, yeah, I, I, there's something I think really important about what you said about um, just understanding, or learning and educating yourself about how something works doesn't remove the sense of awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of spirituality. And I guess you mentioned earlier on towards the beginning of the conversation, the kind of false dichotomy between science and religion. And, you know, I think... Someone like um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's an American astrophysicist, Mm -hmm. as far as I know, not religious in any way. But I love that guy because he, he, he spent his life exploring how things work. But when he talks about it, he talks about it with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of majesty. So it's not reductionist. It's not reducing Mm. something down. It's the same with music, understanding how music works, studying music isn't kind of reducing it to kind of, it's not tearing it apart. Um, there's still the part of you that will feel awe and wonder. Um, yeah, and those things don't need to be in conflict, I guess. I don't think they do. And it's interesting to reflect on why that, that might be. But I know very few people that don't have some kind of passionate view about some piece of music or... Yeah, it's funny. You know, you know it, bring, it, bring, it just brings people to light. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've never met anyone who kind of goes... 
that's not really for me, music. Well, that's, I mean, you know, I used to teach music history as well. That's what interests me. There's certain periods in, in Christian history where they literally rip the organs out of yeah, cathedrals. Yeah. And, and at the moment, we're mid-COVID, you know, going to church with no music is really odd mm. to me. And the Christian traditions, some Christian traditions that see music as some of distraction or an indulgence, I've always found strange, but I would find that strange because of my my background. But, mm-hmm. you know, psalms means psalms. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing that, yeah. you know. So, and actually, again, to go on about the psalms again, these amazing emotional songs. You know, there have yeah. been singer-songwriters for thousands of years across all cultures. So this sort of connection between music and life and the kind of fullness of life, the crap bits and the exciting bits is great. And so who am I to deny that that's got anything to do with the God that I believe, you know, sustains things in being and creating yeah. things and love, and, and love things. Although God probably didn't create the music of Jules Holland, which is a personal affront. <laughs> to, to me, that's the one exception. I can't can't be there with that. Really, Jules Holland is yeah. the one exception. Oh, it's just so. It's just not good. That's a, it's it's contrived and not. It just reminds me of lots of other music that. Um, it's trying to be unsuccessfully. You should probably cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> just in case he listens. <laughs> We're only joking, Jaws, if you listen in. Not really. <laughs> cool. Well, Matt, thanks so much, man. It's been really great chatting to you. Um, I usually try to keep these to about an hour, and we've been going for, for nearly an hour and a half. So, um, <laughs> but that's great. It's really good. It's a good sign. Um, so, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for bringing your mics. Um, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Do To everybody listening... Rev Simpkins and the Phantom Notes. Mm. Big C is the album. Mm. Check it out. Available on when to come out on iTunes? It comes out on iTunes and Spotify, uh, etc. on the 25th of September, 2020. Okay. Well, so by the time this is published, it will already be out. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Give it, give it a listen. Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you. Yeah. Bless you.